And I remember giving that lecture and at the time feeling really bolshy and quite, yeah, this is the right thing to do. And then it went out on air and I thought, oh my God, what have I done? I think each of us has got a responsibility to do what we can to explain what we do and why and to offer opportunities to people that otherwise wouldn't think they deserve them. Really concrete assistance could have been given by the Court of Appeal on a how-to, which was, which was missed. Welcome to this week's episode of the Resolution Podcast. Today, we are very lucky indeed to be joined by Professor Joe Delahunty, QC. Joe was called to the bar in 1986 and became a QC in 2006, and she specialises in the most complex public and private law cases. She's probably best known because of her role as the Gresham Professor of Law, in which she did a series of thought-provoking lectures covering areas of passionate interest to her and focusing particularly on the need to increase diversity in the legal profession. Joe, thank you for coming on the Resolution podcast today, especially as you're on sabbatical right now. What have you been up to? I've been purporting to work on writing this book that I'll mention later on, but it's about my life in the law, what's right with the bar, what's wrong with the bar and the judiciary, and what we need to do to change it. That's tripping off my tongue because I've had to think of how to describe that to you. But in the main, I've been throwing pots, hammering silver and walking dogs because I was really exhausted after a year and a half under COVID. So I wanted to take myself out of the public eye for a while. So that's what I've been doing. Those are all worthy activities. And uh, when are you returning back to everyday life? Well, I've got a total block on my diary at the moment, because as you'll know, um, unless you keep a, a line across it, things start filling up. And also because I've got the luxury of choice with having so many cases offered, if I open my diary, then it gets block booked very quickly, which means I get pulled into cases. So I'm thinking I'm going to come back probably mid-September onwards. But it's been a really good lesson to learn um, about taking yourself off the treadmill. I should have done that last year. I think many of us should have tried to have done that. Um, Under COVID, court work has just been incredibly draining and you need lots of energy in our job to keep going. Joe, you're known as a passionate advocate of more diversity, greater diversity in the legal profession. What do you think the legal profession would gain if it were properly diverse? Okay, let's break it down. I think, first of all, it would mean the quality of decision making would be better because you would bring more experiences, not just in the law, but in the people you mix with, the knowledge base you have into that ephemeral way of deciding what's fair and just. I think greater diversity would mean you'd increase your skills, range of communication with the people that came before you. So I think that would enhance decision making. I think also it would improve the face and the voice literally of the bar with the public because I fail to see how the young people coming before me, young mothers, for example, or young fathers coming to me from prison, for example, look at me as a white middle-aged woman and I need to work hard to get their respect and trust. I think it's better for the public if they see the judiciary better reflecting the society they come from. So that's particularly acute in the crim courts and then the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court. I also think it's it's the right thing for us to to have that type of sense of accountability and transparency. 
where previously judges in particular were seen as being owed respect simply by being judges. Once you get headlines, as you'll remember during Brexit, of the enemies of the people. And once you've got people camping outside of, for example, Great Ormond Street over the Charlie Guard issues and decrying what France's Jay was doing in court, then you know something's gone awry and you need to make sure the public understand what role the judge has and to have the type of respect for the task that the judge is undertaking. So I think there's a number of reasons why diversity is not just a required, but it's essential. And we've got to do better at improving diversity, both in terms of gender and colour and sexuality. And does that also include people's educational backgrounds, in your view? Yeah, I think it's a question of social diversity. I mean, we've we've now, thankfully, got some really strong vocal forces which are identifying what more we've got to do to stop being so white. But there's a big cohort of kids that we're losing, which are council uh, council estate kids, um, you know, young white boys in particular, that aren't going on into further education. So we've got to start the the grassroots encouragement to activity very early on. You can't let up the steam on any area that we're missing out because there's so much potential there. And it's easy enough to do. That's why I'm so passionate about being outspoken. You can be someone who is a speaker for schools, a charity that hopefully our listeners will know about, where people from various professions, not just lawyers, hairdressers, you know, psychologists, footballers, therapists, barristers, judges, you know, we'll sign up to go along to speak to an academy to talk to students before they make big decisions about whether they leave school or whether they stay on a further education about what their job entails to make it more accessible and understandable and also to increase people's horizons about what jobs are out there. I won't be the only person listening to this talk to have been the first professional in their family. I didn't know what a barrister was or indeed what a solicitor was because no one in my family has stayed on school beyond the age of 16. I just knew I wanted to, to do something else. And my uh, mum was the one that pointed me in the direction of reading law because she worked one of her many jobs was as a secretary in a, in a solicitor's office. But for that, would I have done law? I don't think so. How tenuous is that connection? So I think we, we can all make a difference by making our job more understandable so that we can try to pick out the best and we can attract the best of the people to ask us a bit more about it and therefore to inquire about how to how to become one of us. Because if we don't allow them to become one of us, we will be a self-perpetuating pool of, of I'm afraid to say, mainly uh, white middle class. Well, I guess we've got to look at our recruitment processes as well then, haven't we? Yeah, we do. But we, we can start, like I say, one of the reasons I get, I think, so much so many approaches. I mean, the emails snowball in every time I've done a lecture or a, or a speech. Every time I deliver, you know, a free session for Bridging the Bar that you know, and I'm, I'm an ambassador for Bridging the Bar, for anyone that doesn't know, is a charity which was specifically set up to try to tap into the potential of aspiring lawyers at student level to tell them about the type of work we do and to facilitate them having training and mentoring to give give them a really warts and warts and all idea about what coming the coming into the bar was like and that's the success of that charity has been enormous and it was set up by one extraordinary man uh, mass daljai who has shown what you can do if you've got a passion and will to do he's achieved more in the last 18 months and i think many of us at the bar have done in our whole career so it does show what you can do if you've got the mindset to make 
something happen and you've got the determination and indeed the charisma and intelligence to contact the right people to facilitate it. So yes, it's recruitment in NITA, but I think each of us has got a responsibility to do what we can uh, in our local communities to explain what we do and why and to offer opportunities to people that otherwise wouldn't think they deserve them, think to ask of them, but can actually make the most use out of them potentially. Joe, before you went off on sabbatical, I'm guessing one of the last cases you were probably involved in was um, H&N in the Court of Appeal, which people will know was the the case dealing with the treatment of domestic abuse and particularly coercive control in private law children proceeding. It was a case that I think a lot of people had a lot of hope would really move the law forward as far as that area was concerned. When you look back on it now, do you think it was something of a wasted opportunity? I think if I'm going to use a word to describe the judgment, then it would be, I'm afraid, with all due respect, underwhelming. I think we expected more than was given. There were good reasons given for why it didn't go further. But the anticipation when we first started prepping for it, and don't forget, it came on at really short notice. So by the stage it was floated as one as four, we'd already had the Tolson debacle, which um, Russell J had delivered her excoriating judgment upon. And it was clear that that wasn't the only time things had gone awry in the family court system. And there was a move and an understanding, certainly by the president, that this was something that needed and would benefit from a review so that good practice could be identified and where poor, where there was poor law, it could be identified and remedied, which is why there were four conjoined appeals. And initially, this is all going on, they, it was a really short notice prep. So we got notice of the case, I think in December, the parties galvanized really quickly we brought in interested parties very quickly. It's the fastest constructed case of importance that I think I've ever been involved in, or indeed the others had, where everyone literally went to the ropes to try to pull everything up. And we were asked to identify amongst this diverse group. So you've got four conjoined cases, the appellants are respondents, interested parties, families need fathers, women's aid. You know, the, the gamut of expertise was there to be called upon. And we were asked to agree 12, you know, 12 issues that needed resolution. Remarkably, out of that diverse range, we did agree, agree 12. And we prepped our skellies, those of us who were the appellants, on the basis that we'd be addressing the, 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 the court on 12 issues, uh, only for that to be struck down to five. And so that was already a... The, um, given the subject matter of some of the appeals as well, I guess, that idea of whittling you down to... Yeah. So that was the first sort of indication. I think the second was, which your readers won't know, save through me telling them, which is that we weren't given any greater allowance in terms of our documentation to address the points of public importance. So in practical terms, you're allowed 25 pages of defined script in order to articulate your case on behalf of the appellant in the Court of Appeal. We had thought that we'd be able to deal with our clients' appeal because they shouldn't be prejudiced by being involved in the case of national significance and also deal with the now reduced five points of, of importance. It wasn't until the penultimate night before we filed our skeleton that we were told no additional pages will be allowed. So that compromised, I think, in many ways, our, our ability to develop the ideas that we'd already prepped because quite rightly for our clients, they were there to win their appeal. So we had to identify those points in our skelly that 
would align with her issues as opposed to addressing the other points which we had views on and which we'd done research on. And that was the same for many of the other parties. Then when we, come, we came to court, we had the advantage because everyone had tactically adjusted their case and their arguments so as to support their clients, the issues in their clients appeal. Nonetheless, there was a, a phenomenal library created of research material brought over, you know, international law, brought through academics, brought through research papers, um, case law, not just uh, national, but international a beautiful body of library that people had invested God knows how many pro bono hours in, in curating and collecting, which never found its way at all into the judgment. And I think out of the many things I would have liked to have seen, it would be not to have lost that library of knowledge, which could have had a great value going down. And that's before you get to the content of the judgment. And I know from feedback from many sources, including um, senior members of the judiciary, all the way down to magistrates and practitioners, have, for example, a really simple thing, like saying that Scott schedules are on the way out and they've done their task, but they're not providing any real direction on what next to do, has left those who are actually in the process of trying to deal with these cases um, stuck really with a no to the Scott schedule, but then what next? So every case is a trial. And that's just a small example, I think, about where really concrete assistance could have been given by the Court of Appeal on a how-to, which was, which was missed. How can we get the um, information from that body of research put together and, and distributed to everyone? I mean, it, it, it sounds like a travesty that that's been lost. It will have gone to somewhere. I think there's a working party group to whom it would have been sent by the Court of Appeal. And if I reread the judgment again, it might tell us the answer to that. So that might be a question to post afterwards. But I think it's got value for wider significance because we as practitioners want it mm. at every level. You know, Obviously, research needs to be updated. So it's only the starting block. But nonetheless, I cannot bemoan the waste of having so much learning gathered by consent. It was an agreed bundle. That's the point. It was an agreed bundle between every single perspective of those who were engaged in the family justice system. So it didn't matter if you were for women's age or family, families need fathers. We had all invested time and energy in thinking this is material that should be available for us to make submissions upon. So I, I I don't know the answer to that, but it is one I would like to have an answer to, but it's not mine to give because it's not my document to provide and prepare. What I can do is obviously dip and choose into it to circulate it and to use it in my cases. Mm. Or, for example, when I'm sitting as a judge or to distribute. But should it really be right that just because I'm involved in the case, I know what's there? I don't think so. I think that's about holding knowledge amongst the pool of the small, whereas it should be accessible to all particularly because we know that the bulk of the cases we're dealing with aren't dealt with by high-level judiciary, but are dealt with by the lower courts. So can I press you then, Joe? because I work on cases at the coal face, I do private law 
cases day in, day out, fact-finding schedules, domestic abuse, and the approach I see being taken is, is different every day. Some people are saying there shouldn't be schedules. Some people are saying there should be schedules with a sort of narrative explanation at the end. And in many cases, schedules are still required, whether they're called Scott schedules or not. Where should we be going with all of this now? Well, I think, then again, if you'd listen to the... No one can afford to take time out from a totally overburdened legal aid practice to tune in for four days of the Court of Appeal. All right, it's just not a luxury. Had you have done, however, you would have heard more exchanges than made their way into the judgment about what was functional and what was viable. And one of the emerging themes that was gathering consensus, well, consensus is going too far a word, but certainly had traction, was the concept of having the equivalent of our pleadings that we have in public law. So you assert the allegation, you identify the um, proof you rely upon, and you assert the relevance. And that's particularly important where you're saying the of the impact of the act upon the victim and upon the satellite victims, which might be the children in the household. I think that's the way to go for a number of reasons. One, I think it's less stark than simply an allegation, for example, of rape, because it requires the person drafting it to think about the implications around what was happening at that time and to think of the evidence that's necessary to prove the allegation mm. and then to focus their mind on the implications of it. And what I'm afraid I do see and hear when I'm sitting or when I'm talking to junior members is how poorly thought through domestic abuse is at the at the lowest level of where the machine cogs have to be really well oiled to go we know that the pressure on uh, funding is so great in high street firms that when a client comes into a solicitor's office they are seen initially triaged by the got the receptionist and they'll be triaged up to the legal exec and then may go to a solicitor you will know more than that for me but i do know that the payment rate is so poor that you can only give limited amount of time. And one of the things we brought to the attention of the Court of Appeal, specifically in our skeleton argument on behalf of our client, was that too often, and for understandable reasons, the questions asked are the first, the last, the worst. And I can see you all nodding because the viewers, the listeners won't know that we are on Zoom talking to one another. So this is a proper conversation. But there's a logic to that. One, it's really easy to train, first, last, worst. Secondly, it means you've got a direction for what you do. But thirdly, and most importantly, the downside of that simplicity is it's just not nuanced enough to enable a traumatised victim, because you will treat them as though they are the victim, can tell you about some of the really awful things that have happened that are a build-up to those matters, which is why coercion and control is so difficult to plead, because it's so difficult to extract, because it's a process of behaviour which may have happened over years where tiny things to observers now are critical in the controlling function, you know, a look, a word, when it just, it's not even as, it's not even a click of the fingers. So we need encouragement to those who are really at the coalface to understand how to extract the right information. They can't do that unless they know what's going to be relevant to a court. So that's why um, I particularly decry the Scott schedule, because I think it does feed into the first, last, worst. I think that means there's a drive towards physical abuse, which is easier to prove through photographs, 
far less easy to extract the really critical psychological damage of coercion and control and very inappropriate to bring out allegations which are sometimes the hardest to speak out publicly which is about rape. You've also you you hinted earlier at the fact that there was some pretty shocking decision making at first instance in the cases that were appealed in H&M. Yeah. Do you think that that partly comes back to what you started talking to us about in terms of the importance of diversity in the legal profession? In other words, is, is there an aspect that people are, are making decisions from a very particular social perspective? Right, good question. And I am going to break it down before I come to the ultimate answer, but I think context is important. First thing to realise is that the four cases that went up to appeal were all decisions from experienced family judges. They were, our appeal was from Judge Evans Gordon, the other two were from Judge Scarra and Judge Tolson. These were the designated, if not designated family judges, certainly the senior judges within their respective courts. So I think the question I first have to ask myself is, how can it be that the senior judges within these courts got things so wrong? Next question is, if they got it wrong, was it because the training wasn't there or was it that the training was there was not effective and if it wasn't effective was that because those who made the decisions were blind uh, blinded to it because they had their own they own their attitude now i i cannot think that any judge properly aware of what to be done would deliberately turn their face against good training and good guidance i think in the vacuum of understanding what was required personal prejudices and perspectives can feed in. In our case, for example, we were very concerned about rape myths that are crept into our judges' determination of our clients' allegations. You have to think where is that training available so that you know where to look in order to get it. I think it would be helpful if the training that the judiciary got was more transparently known about so that the reassurance that the Court of Appeal gave to say, don't worry, it's out there, was something that we, the practitioners, and we, the public, could see as being something of value and of use. In terms of personal issues that may or may, may not affect decision-making, no judge can be immune from the environment in which they were born, brought up with, and associate with. To suggest that we are entirely blinded to any type of bias would be totally wrong because we all carry inbuilt bias with us. It's a question of how conscious we can make that bias and therefore to address it. I don't think it's a, it was an accident that, that there was one female judge also appealed, our judge, um, Evans Gordon, amongst the two men. I think the Court of Appeal wanted to make sure that it appeared to be a gender neutral issue. But they were senior judges, like I say, coming back through SISTI. My question is, what's happening at the lower courts? What's happening all the way down to the magistrates? Because as we know from the Court of Appeal judgment, up to 40% of cases involve allegations of domestic abuse. And that's quite aside from the number of cases which stand alone um, domestic violence injunctions. So what of the training and the makeup of the judiciary at all levels that distribute and um, those type of decision-making courses. And I just don't have the statistics, I'm afraid to give you an answer. But we do know, if we look at trickle down, that we don't have enough diversity in the legal profession in terms of the judiciary at the levels at which we can determine it. So I 
really find it difficult to think that we're doing that much better on the ground. We also know that there was a um, recent parliamentary debate, wasn't there, about what the training budget is for magistrates. Um, and there was a, a, a figure thrown around, although I don't think HMCTS accepted um, the, the, the very low figure that was suggested, saying it's impossible to, to work out what the training budget is because a lot of the training is provided in-house. But presumably, from what you're saying, is that if we're looking at training, it needs to it needs to go all the way down for all fact-finders within the court system. I think it needs to start from the ground moving up because mm. I we made a point in our skeleton argument, and I disagree with the Court of Appeals um, summary at the end. In our skeleton argument, we had said that just because there are relatively few reported cases about when judges get it wrong in domestic violence and abuse cases doesn't mean to say there is not more to look at. We said that because we don't have enough reported cases at levels below high court, so therefore we don't know what is or isn't going right or wrong in our county court level. You don't get reported decisions below county court level. Most of the cases are dealt with below county court level. And if you look at the level of experience of those who act at cases at the lower courts, they are likely to be the most junior amongst our professional, possibly if not the most junior, but you have to be frank to say that the payment rate is such, it's not going to attract the most experienced senior representatives of either the bar or the solicitor's profession. And if they are in the lower courts, how much knowledge base do they have or confidence to know when things have gone wrong and to know how then to appeal. And then the mechanics of the appeal are really quite convoluted. You have to have a transcript of the judgment. How likely is that to happen in the magistrate's court? You need to get the transcript in order to have the advice, in order to get the funding. And you have a time span. How likely is that amongst you know the, the busy range of practice that those type of practitioners would need to deal with? And so we said in our skelly, that you should not think just because relatively few cases come to you, the Court of Appeal, it means there's not a problem. The Court of Appeal said, however few cases there are, nonetheless, it's serious. They took note of the fact of how limited the number of cases were that come for attention. I think that is, I, I think that is a false premise, because I suspect from all the anecdotal evidence we have at the coalface that many more things go wrong at the lower levels than would ever reach the attention of appellate judges which is why I say the training has to start right at the bottom because if we don't get it right at the bottom the usual process of remedying that wrong through the appeal process I think is available in a tiny percentage of cases which is why we can't afford to be complacent and why we need to start uh, to get it right at the very early stages. And that means amongst our profession, the bar and the and the solicitor's profession, as well as, you know, the um, the legal advisors to magistrates and then the magistrates training as well. A couple of episodes back, we had Louise Tickle speaking very vocally about the need for transparency. Perhaps what you're saying is another indication of a need for transparency in effect what Louise Tickle was saying is you need transparency so there is a cross check on what's what's happening day to day in these cases. I, I mean I know Louise has got um, you know it causes divided opinions I happen to think that she does a really important job in getting access and then raising things for public debate because without debate there's no chance of there being an external perspective and we can all become slightly myopic in the view we take of our world. So I 
think Louise's work is a really welcome galvanizer for discussion to make us think about whether we're doing things good enough. Because for every family that we deal with, good enough actually isn't good enough for them. They really want to know that they have been treated fairly and appropriately and properly. And if they don't, then they go off and talk to their mates. And we've lost a number of people that previously may have thought the best of us to then thinking that we aren't good enough to respect or to do the job we deserve. So I do applaud the work that Louise is doing. I may not agree with everything she says, but I think one, I respect her right to say it. And two, I really appreciate the dialogue that she galvanizes. So back to your point about transparency, I do wonder whether we would deal with some cases if we knew there were journalists in the room. I mean, the behavior that, for example, the subject of appeal in this case, uh, not in ours by our particular judge, but by Judge Scarron. But would that have happened if, if a press officer had been in the room hearing what he was saying and what was going on? I don't know. One of the reasons I think the family courts have got to grapple with issues of abuse of power within the mechanism of the court system is we are so invisible to the outside world. You know, we don't have the press in or the public in as the criminal courts do on a day-by-day -day basis as a matter of right. And I wonder whether some of our judges would behave differently if they knew they were being observed by someone outside of our profession. So that's a roundabout way, I think, of saying, I think that we do require greater transparency. Where the balance of that lies in terms of, for example, these cases, a stranger being in the court to hear a traumatised victim of rape describing what they experienced, I think, is, is a question that takes it from the political and socially advantageous position to the private domain of fear and embarrassment and shame. And that couldn't be allowed to happen because it may compromise the quality of the evidence that the person was given, which could compromise the case. So I think we have to have that nuanced approach but I think as a matter of principle, transparency is something that we should aspire to and do more to deliver. Can I just ask you, you mentioned earlier that some rape myths had crept in in the first instance decision in your case. Could you tell us more about what that was and what the concern is? There is guidance out there about what rape myths comprise. And we know that the criminal courts have got a huge, fantastic lexicon of the type of guidance which... Um, you should be looking at and I know that is now something that is accessible to family judges it's it should be heavily used I think the question is whether we could all benefit from it and when I say that it's because practitioners who are acting for either the complainants or the respondents could really do with access to the rape myth guidance that the judiciary has in order to make sure one they extract the right evidence in confidence in private from their clients about what is or isn't relevant. Two, it would help to dislodge some of the inbuilt prejudices that we as practitioners carry. And it would tell us, it would show us how to properly conduct our case in court. So for example, cross-examination about previous sexual history, but the criminal courts have got a fantastic array of skills which tells you what is or isn't relevant and it ain't relevant. But we in the family courts have, I'm afraid, have got a tradition of thinking that hearsay evidence goes in better everything in the out and too often too too little do we actually filter what mm. is necessary for the judge to hear and what's right for the judge to hear and if we as advocates don't know what should be 
removed from the judicial arena how can we then advocate when someone else says it all goes in or starts questioning because we're not then assisting the court in saying hey hey hang on you've got you've got jurisdiction under pd3aa to control both what material is there on what cross-examination you have and i and it's your duty judge because ultimately ultimately it is the court's duty to apply pd12j and and um, 3aa appropriately and this is that these are the tools for you to exercise your discretion and i'm applying these guidance to these facts in these case and you you must be with me you hear me on this but i'd be really interested in a straw poll from those listening to this podcast about how often there's ever been legal argument about what is or isn't relevant evidence in terms of sexual behavior predilection uh, that a court should hear and how often points are taken in cross-examination about that being prejudicial as opposed to probative and how often the judge is given a ruling on it. And I think uh, the, the the deafening silence, I suspect, will resonate amongst anyone listening to this, will go to show how, how little we know and how much we should know in order to do our job properly, in order to guide the court effectively. It may be quite hard to imagine running arguments about whether past sexual history should be included in front of magistrates where some of these cases are, are obviously having to be dealt with. It would be incredibly difficult to, I think, grapple with those issues in front of the magistrates. Well, particularly if you end up being the teacher at the same time you're making the argument, mm. which comes back to the point that the, the area of the courts which are likely to deal with the majority of these cases, I think, need the training because it needs it is ultimately the court's responsibility, not the advocates, actually, particularly given so many litigants, unrepresented litigants now act. It's the court's responsibility to make sure that the proceedings are con- conducted appropriately and fairly. Mm. So we have to start with the decision makers, don't we? Joe, um, since that case was reported, there's been one major change in that the Domestic Abuse Act has come into force. It's slowly beginning to come into force is probably the way to think about it. And for the first time, we've got a statutory definition of domestic abuse. We've got acknowledgement of coercive control. Do you think that's a breakthrough moment for the way that domestic abuse is going to be treated in the family courts? I think it's a breakthrough stage, but I think it should be just the beginning. I think the I did not have any idea until I did that research just how many governments have let victims down over decades. This isn't a party political issue. Every government has had the opportunity to look at a bill such as this and to deliver change through enacting it. And each time it's got knocked off the shelf, sometimes at the very last moment. And in the midst of that, women have died. Children have suffered abuse by witnessing um, the abuse of their parents. So I am delighted that it's now passed and gone to the statute books, but that's not without a huge amount of regret about how long it's taken. So I don't want to be too celebratory about it because I think it was there ready to grab for decades and it wasn't. Understanding now as part of the concept of definition what coercion and control is, I think is a massive improvement because Coming back to what I was saying before, Simon, the first, last, worst, we do need there to be almost permission for those who are responsible, charged with protection, either of children or um, women or men. It's not all women, obviously, who are victims of abuse. The majority are, but particularly when we're no longer operating in the type of binary family network that we would have had 10, 20 years ago. 
it's important to understand that there are dynamics of personalities which can lead to abuse, which inform abuse that comes later on. And coercion and control is a bit like grappling with fog. You know, the words are actually quite simple and they've got that nice alliteration, but that, that doesn't mean to say that the concepts behind them and then applying the concepts to the facts and issue is any easier. I think it's one of the hardest tasks to ask any person to try to work out what amongst a range of reactions is part of a pattern of behaviour as opposed to just a very troubled relationship. So the fact that we are now required to look at coercion and control, I do think is a massive step forward because just because it's difficult doesn't mean to say we shouldn't deal with it, we've got to. And the Court of Appeal um, have and guidance thereafter have clearly said that actually coercion and control is the bowl that holds the emotional abuse and the physical abuse. So you have to look at things through the lens of that. And I think that is enormously helpful. I think the fact it now includes um, children as victims specifically is enormously important. I can't believe that 22 years on from Riel, where we had that Glazer and Sturge piece of work, that it's taken us this long to recognize that children are the collateral victims of witnessing either verbal um, assaults, um, not just physical assaults, and they can go on to replicate that because they've lost their standards of social norms. I think having the the domestic abuse, sorry, the domestic abuse commission is a really important stance because we need stats. You know, people hate numbers and hate statistics, but it's only with knowing the scale of the problem we're grappling with that we can actually attempt to do something about it. So I and also non-fatal strangulation, I think coming in as a clear act is really important. What we learned through the Court of Appeal research is that non-fatal strangulation and non-fatal suffocation is not a failed attempt to kill quite often. It's actually a form of control. It says, I can do this and I'm the one allowing you to live. So the act of the attempt is a really significant act because it's the ultimate step before death. And sadly, there is quite a clear trajectory in terms of the violence increasing from emotional to physical to these type of acts and then for it to being a death. It's a really important assertion of power that makes the victim feel entirely at the mercy. I think that's important because it's not a failed attempt to kill, it's a deliberate attempt to intimidate and to abuse. So that I think is, is enormously important, as is revenge porn offences now being covered. That is all to be applauded. I think one of the areas that I regretted seeing and, and Jenny Beck has pointed out is it was a real mistake to exclude migrant women from those who are protected. They had called for a creation of a register for serial perpetrators of domestic abuse and stalking, a national register, which wasn't followed up. So there's still work to be done, but I am relieved. Delight is not the word. I'm relieved that at last we've got it onto the statute books. Your work at Gresham College has also thrown the spotlight on some of the other issues that, as a profession, both solicitors and barristers, we all need to look at and be concerned about. And the two that particularly spring to my mind was concerns about judicial bullying in the profession and also concerns about misconduct and how we handle issues of misconduct within the 
profession. Had you expected your work to create such a such a splash and I guess such a response from everybody? No, when I took up the professorship, my initial intention, because you're interviewed for it, it's not it's not not in the gift, you know, you have to apply, it's a job was to open the doors to the family court because in the same way I've been talking to you about transparency I was really struck by the fact that if my own family not my immediate family but if my own family still don't really get what I do in court then something's gone wrong so my initial pitch to Gresham when I applied for the job which obviously I did alongside my silk practice because it was an adjunct not a replacement was to say I wanted to open the courts, I wanted to open the doors to the family courtroom. So the initial year was very, spent very much breaking down what is this, what's different between a court of crime and a, a court investigating family cases, what's different about private law and public law, and I broke it down into subject matter. But I found the deeper I went into what we do, and you know I do the most horrific type of cases, but so if I talk about you know what happens when you're dealing with with dead babies or shaken babies allegedly or with factors induced illness which can be starvation leading to death or isis radicalism cases the numbers started dropping off because people actually want so much knowledge you give them too much knowledge about what we do and they back off because once you shine a light into the shadows of the nightmares that we all know go on on a daily basis a lot of people can't cope with what they are being told and it gave me the opportunity to rethink what the purpose of the remainder of the lectures was going to do there was a start of the all rise movement i was asked to speak on it on a platform where the assumption was that the it was the me too sorry not all rise me too movement where the assumption was going to be that we were talking about sexual harassment and abuse but it seems to me that sexual harassment and abuse within the legal profession has at its root to it abuse of power and abuse of power happens in many ways and it's not just sexual but it's also in terms of domineering behavior and that led me onto the issue of judicial bullying and so i took the platform at the me too launch behind the gown to talk about what I thought was the underpinning cause about violence and abuse and harassment and wanted it to be looking not just within but out, which is why I spoke about judicial bullying. And no, I didn't expect it to kick off in quite the same way it did. It's often demonstrates that there are so many tales there to be told that need someone or want someone to start the debate up for it then to come into the open. When I did the lecture on sexual harassment for the bar which was actually a really distressing one not just to prepare but also to deliver particularly because i had victims who given me their stories in confidence in the audience and obviously i cleared with them exactly what i was going to say and it was an all-out challenge to um to our regulatory body because uh, i had those who i was saying you're telling me that because i've been given this account i'm now under an absolute strict liability duty to report that to you and i'm not going to I'm not going to because it's not what the victim wants the process that they are describing and which i've become aware of doesn't enable me to be confident that their allegation is going to be dealt with in the way which is going to be do anything other than potentially abuse and greater and if you want to discipline me then off you go and I remember giving that lecture and at the time feeling really bolshy and quite, yeah, this is the right thing to do. And then it went out on air and I thought, oh my God, what have I done? Clearly I wasn't disciplined. 
other measures came in place. So we've now got the spot um, app, which is there to report behaviours that are inappropriate at any level. But it doesn't take me by surprise that the recent report we've um, had out in the space of the last few months goes to show that too few victims feel able to report the abuse they've suffered because they fear they won't be believed, they fear it will affect their career and they don't get the support they want to make them reassured about what's going on. And then when I look at the experiences of those who have had the courage to go through the whole process of investigation, and you'll all be aware of the um, publicity that we had just last year about a victim of abuse who had been assaulted at a family family chamber's party by a senior member of the bar. And you'll be aware of the horror that I think all felt at the sentence that was handed out three months suspension. And if anyone's followed that case or not, and there there are a good number of respected articles on it, you'll be aware that that victim would now hesitate to go forward that whole process again. And Adid has felt that she's had to leave that chambers where she was the victim of abuse whilst the abuser remains. And that's not acceptable, surely. Isn't that coming back to the old scale where it was the, it was the person who was the victim that felt that they had no option but to leave? We've got a lot more to do. Too long, that's been the message at the bar, hasn't it? Is that the, uh, the victim would be the person who's had to move, have to move on? The victim has to make the choices, it seems to me, all the time. And I'm not sure the choices are there for them to have to make. Once the fact of abuse has been proven, then the system should be in place whereby they become the protected person. Mm. And the chambers looks at a way in which that they can continue their... Given their their practice has already been hindered by being a victim of abuse because of the consequence upon them of, of having to function under both the act then the investigation, surely it's right that the chambers then embrace that person to try to make sure they feel more supported going forward. So am I surprised by the outcry was the question you asked. No, I'm not, because I think there's a lot more of it than goes reported. We all know anecdotally how it happens. It hasn't been stamped out and we have to do more to make sure that it's seen as being socially and professionally unacceptable. We have to monitor we have to support and we have to be vocal and visible in saying it i don't think it's right that just because for example i amongst others mary aspinall males has been an absolute you know phenomena of a hero um to name just one um hannah's family women in law that she set up which has got you know regular surgeries you know the western circuit women's forum i don't know what there is at the solicitors network but i know the bar women at the bar have really forged a strong path that they want others to follow. The number of emails I get, the number of approaches I get, to me personally, just because I've taken a stance on it, go to show that there's real value in more of us, men and women, this is not just a women's issue, it's a a non-gender issue, should be calling it out so that there are more of us to be contacted when things go wrong. I'm one of a number of resources, but there should be more of us and it should be an expected rather than being the exception. Do you, do you hear from solicitors as well then? I get, yeah, I get, because of my presence on social media, Twitter, I get um, emails or rather, you know, direct messages from any number of people who are in the legal profession, legal assistants quite often, um, legal execs, pupils, students, bar students, and it, it goes upwards. 
So, yeah, I, I think there's a really big problem there and I don't think we are doing enough to tackle it. Joe, thank you so much for giving us so much of your time this morning, especially when you're notionally at least on sabbatical. You've told us how many invitations you get, how much, how, how many people get in touch with you. And we're very, very pleased indeed that you've given time to talk to resolution members today. Why did you feel this was an invitation that you ought to accept? I think if I, I need to do what I say. So if I say communication is important, if I say collaboration between different limbs of the profession is important, then it's important to say yes when you get an opportunity such as this to talk to people, albeit virtually, so that we can share knowledge. Because I really believe there's power in knowledge and to distribute it and to, or to have an engagement process. So if I've told people about the significance, for example, of attempted suffocation, that's changed one person's view, that's really important. If I've told them about the availability of material on rape myths, that's really important. If I've told them that there is an organisation such as Speakers for Schools or Bridging the Bar that they can positively become part of to try to work with their community to encourage the best of our young to come to join the profession. That's really important. So I said yes, because it gives me a chance to share information and also not to be someone that becomes aloof because the danger of being Professor Joe Delahunty QC is that you become further away from those who really need to listen and for me to listen to. So I thought this was an ideal medium for me to make sure that we can do what we say we do on the tin, which is to listen and learn and get the best from one another and to collaborate. So that's why I said yes. Honestly, we can't thank you enough, Joe. Uh, what are you gonna do with the rest of your day on sabbatical? <laughs> Okay, so my sabbatical is going really well. But, um, and as soon as I finish this link, I'm going to send a Zoom to someone who's reached out to me through email, through Chambers, to ask me to be interviewed um, to be part of the BAME Educational and Career Guides, Guides to the Legal Profession 2021. Now, I'm asking myself why they're asking a white middle-aged woman to be interviewed for a publication aimed at young BAME students, but I'm interested in the answer. And it may be because of my work for Bridging the Bar, it might be because of the platforms I've taken on diversity, but that's exactly the type of invitation that someone like me and others like me should be saying yes with knobs on to, because how else am I going to get a message out to a publication that is specifically targeted to go to the BAME students nationwide. So that's what I'm going to do afterwards and I do it with total pleasure. Well, hopefully after that, you'll um, you'll be able to spend some time relaxing then this afternoon. <laughs> yeah, after that, I'm going to go to a silver studio and bash some serious energy into some inner metal where my frustrations can at least can create something constructively rather than destructively. <laughs> um, Joe, thanks very much for coming on the Resolution Podcast. Thank you, Joe.